gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven to be the true bread which gives life to the world. Evermore, give us this bread that he may live in us and we in him, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You guys can be seated. Hear, hear the word of the Lord from Ezekiel, chapter 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the right age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow with, to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain at your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. And you took some of your gardens and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given to you and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, you set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. 
Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed of when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ivy. Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you this morning. We, if this is your first Sunday joining us live or online, uh, we are in the midst of a series, a year-long journey together as a church in the scriptures, reading through the entirety of the Bible, and then kind of day by day, week by week, and then every Sunday we're taking a moment to, to focus in on a particular arena, a particular area, a particular passage that illustrates or that draws out the reality that there's a redemptive story being written by God to his people and ultimately in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at maybe one of the most vivid and provocative passages in scripture. Ezekiel chapter 16 is one of those like not bedtime story kind of reading as you just heard again. But this morning as we, as we look at the, the passage and as, more significantly as we have an opportunity to look at God as he displays himself in a way that Frankly, he doesn't do that often and, as I said, pretty vivid, pretty provocative way. We're going to look at the reality that God is, is an enamored husband, that God is an anguished husband, and God is a faithful husband. God is, God is an enamored husband, that he is an anguished husband and a faithful husband. Well, the passage begins looking at God is this enamored husband. We see the beginning of the passage, this, this baby infant girl that's in this field and no one seems to care for her. And in verse five, it says, no, no, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but, but you were cast out into the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. 
So here's this baby, baby child girl in a field thrown out. And, and again, at that time in the history of the world, and unfortunately sometimes still now, that is the case, right? Particularly little girls, because they were not seen as, as profitable or as valuable as sons, were left out to ex be exposed and to die in the field. And so anyone living at this time would know this very well. And unfortunately, there are still communities in our world, which is one of the reasons why we're a part of She is Safe, because they try to combat that. They're, they're about raising up the value of girls in the world. But this is this, is this picture, right? Of this little girl. And this is what it says in verse 6. The Lord shows up. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. God comes by and he sees this hopeless situation and he says, live. He through this incredible act of grace and mercy, he moves towards this little one. In verse 7, it says, I made you flourish like a plant in the field. Now, of course, this is a picture of God's movement towards Israel, right? This is a, this is a story. This is an, a parable, if you will. This entire passage is a parable of what's been going on and what God is going to do and has done. So he says, listen, you were abandoned and I invested in you. I came to you. I met you in your need. And says this little girl, I supported you. I can imagine that this little girl was then, you know, brought in, keep the, 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 uh, the parable together. Like the little girl's brought in into the home in a sense and seemingly cared for. You could just see the, the response of people would be like, boy, you're uh, pretty fortunate. I mean, you don't have any real value. So the fact that you were brought in, like that's all grace and all mercy. And it is. But don't, don't think of yourself as much at all. I mean, let's be honest. You were brought in from the field. There's not a whole lot to you. And that's where surprise number two happens. Surprise number one is that they have a, some seemingly valueless in the world economy. And, and the Lord moves in that and says, no, I see something that no one else sees. And secondly, we have an even more astonishing surprise. Starts in verse 8 when he says, When I passed by you again and, and saw you, behold, you were of the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, and I made my vow to you, and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. God enters into a covenant and says, You're now going to be mine. Oh, you don't deserve it. It's shocking and surprising, but I'm actually going to wed you. We see this, this, this parable lived out in the life of Hosea, right? We hear him saying, and the Lord saying through Hosea as he, as he marries this woman, the Lord says about his people in verse 16 of Hosea chapter 2, and in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, which means my master. In verse 19, he says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you. I'm going to marry you forever. This is God saying to his people, saying to us, I, I don't want you to have a, a, a distant, subordinate kind of relationship with me. I want you to be an honored partner. You're not a not a maidservant. No, no, you're a bride to me. I want intimate love with you, not servitude. God's saying, I, I don't want you to just be servants. What the God of the universe is declaring 
and he's declaring this to you this morning, is that though you have been saved by grace, and it is true, he's not satisfied with relating to you as a ruler relates to his subjects only, or as a shepherd would relate to his sheep only, or even as a friend would relate to his friend only. He wants to relate to you and to me as a spouse relates to his spouse. He wants to be connected to you as a husband is connected to his wife and a wife to her husband. Now this is, this is astonishing imagery, astonishing declaration. Like what other religion in the world does the, the God say, I am going to enter into this kind of intimate, seemingly equalized relationship with you where I'm going to have intimate relationships with you. No other God describes himself like this. Don't you see, when you're lovers, it's not like just being partners. You give your heart to the other. That's precisely what we see here. God boldly and unapologetically lays out this imagery. And of course, it's not just here, right? I mean, literally, Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. Isaiah 63, 62, and as the bridegroom, listen, rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. It's remarkable. This this idea that, that, that God is interested in relating to us as a spouse. And, and what it declares is a couple of pivotal things. One is that he desires an exclusive relationship. He desires our relationship with him to be exclusive. You can have multiple kids, but you have one wife, at least in all wisdom, you have one wife. Sister wives is not a real thing. Just call things what they are. Unless you're... Marriage, any, any counselor, any good counselor would tell you that unless your marriage comes, comes before your kids and comes before your job and comes before your hobbies, comes before your parents, like your, your marriage is on the way to eroding. It's an exclusive relationship. But it's also, and this is what's so shocking about God choosing this picture and describing himself as, as our husband, as a husband to his people, is that it's a relationship of mutual delight. You heard it when I just read in Isaiah. Bridegroom rejoices over you. There's a reciprocity that finds the other beautiful. It's an aesthetic. And, and, and if you've been married for a while, you know this is true, right? Most of us, when we get married, right, we, we start off with like the crutches of like, well, you're really pretty or you're really handsome or you looked really good in that bathing suit that time we went there in, you know, in 10th grade. So, so we have those crutches to be like, yeah, I'm so glad I married you because you're so hot, right? That, that carries us for a bit. But that is not the thing that makes a marriage, right? One, because it won't carry the day, but what happens over time as we begin to, as we, as we meet, as we enter into the beauty of who someone is, as we see their character be exposed more thoroughly, more significantly, we begin to find ourselves drawn to them, delighting in them far beyond what was hot into what is actually substantive. We find ourselves drawn to their soul, which is why aging then doesn't become a crippling, destructive reality. There's a mutual joy and delight in the beauties and in the excellencies of the other. That's what God's saying he wants, wants to do, wants to have. God wants to enjoy his bride. And if you know God as your husband and as your, as your level, a lover, then, then your whole life begins to be saturated with adoration, with, with worship, 
with delight. Jonathan Edwards famously said, he said, religious people find God useful, but Christians find God beautiful. It's not just what God does or can do for you or you can get him to do for you. No, no. The Christian looks at God and says, you are beautiful. I am captivated by you. Because there's a mutual love and delight, we're moved by God's beauty. And because it's mutual, God is moved towards us, towards our beauty. groom is taken with his bride. And what God's inviting even us this morning is to understand that and to live like and to find resting in and to know the reality of that delight in you. That he rejoices over you with singing, according to Zephaniah. And what we need, we need is we need like a robust theology that's going to drive us deep into the soul, this, this belief that God finds us beautiful and delightful to be enjoyed and to be delighted. So, this morning, how delighted do you believe God is with you? Like, how real is that in the scope of your understanding, in the space of your heart? How, how delighted are you in him? Because that's the relationship that God sets out, right? He says, this is what it could look like. And you can be exuberantly excited about that. And, and maybe one of the reasons why that maybe feels out of reach this morning is, is the reality of the second picture of God as husband reveals to us. God as an anguished husband, starting in verse 15. Starting in verse 15, we're confronted with what's wrong with us. The Lord says, but you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and you made for yourself colorful shrines and on them you played the whore. The like has, like has never been nor shall ever be. What's staggering about everything that follows verse 15 on is that everything that we saw that God gave her as his bride, as he adorned her and let her know, this is the ways I want you to know that I delight in you, that, that my heart is towards you, that I'm, that I'm being vulnerable in what I'm giving to you and making possible for you. All those things get turned around. The clothing, the jewelry, the children, the flour, the oil, everything gets used to acquire lovers, other lovers. So what do we learn from this? Well, we're confronted with what's wrong with us, right? And, and let's be honest, culturally, the Bible calls that sin. You know, those of you pretty familiar with that. But, but culturally, we kind of have, we have, we have trouble with that picture at times, right? We're like, well, sin is just a rough word, and I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. And we've we have a hard time with the idea of any kind of moral absolutes, the, the, the idea that God has a moral law that is to be followed, that anyone should follow that. And some of that's because, let's be honest, it's been used in bad ways. People have used an absolute moral law to be able to push their agenda forward, to be able to subjugate others while maintaining power, acquiring power. That's happened. It's happened throughout the years, throughout the centuries, no doubt about it. But that doesn't mean it's not true. 
There must be an accounting for evil somehow because it is here, right? The Bible calls it sin. The imagery that God gives about a husband, about a lover, I think it has opportunity to expand the way or maybe just give us a different picture, a dimension of what sin can look like or what it means. And Tim Kelly does this beautifully, and so I'm just going to talk about his three points here. He says that the sin that we see here is not so much doing bad things. So sin is not so much doing bad things, rather it's worshiping good but wrong things. It's worshiping good but wrong things. That, that sin is, and this is so important, that sin is not so much breaking God's rules but breaking God's heart. Sin is not only a violation of the power of God, yes, of the majesty of God, yes, but it's a violation and abuse of the vulnerability of God. That God has made himself vulnerable to his people. You heard it, right? And I saw you and I, and I came and I took you and I offered you and I gave to you. I opened myself up to love you. And sin is the abuse of that vulnerability for our own purposes. And Keller concludes, until you see those three things, you don't really get sin. And in some ways, you really don't understand God. So what is the, the essence of sin according to this passage? Well, you'll, you'll notice in, in the reading that it is, it's ping pongs between idolatry and adultery, right? It kind of goes back and forth, back and forth between those two, partly because they are the same thing. Now, every person, every one of us, like needs to be desired at, at a spiritual level. Like we have this need to be desired, to be, to be wanted, to, to, to belong. And so we find ourselves looking around saying, what will make me wantable? And what this text is telling us is that whether it's, it's, it's financial status or success, the way which you're able to use your talents, your, your own physical beauty at this moment or how impressive your family is, what kind of social status, your social standing you currently have, how your peers relate to you or see you. Whatever is going, whatever I am going to look to, that, that, I, that I have to have, that, that that thing that will make me desirable, if I achieve that, then I'm okay. That's what God's after. But Ezekiel 16 is saying, is that at the heart level, whatever I'm looking to, whatever I'm seeking to be desirable for, whatever I have to have in order to matter, that that thing, like I've gotten into bed with that thing. That idolatry and adultery are, are the same thing. Now, sexual love, of course, is far more intense and far more obsessive in a way than, than parental love, right? Certainly more than even friendship love. We're told here is that anything beside God as a source of our desirability, as a source of our being wantable, as our real meaning for what is true and what is important in life, that isn't God, becomes a lover God. It becomes someone that we are enslaved to in love. And that way we become attracted to it into death in the end. And the, imagery, and the imagery that Ezekiel uses, God uses, is just vivid. 
verse 25, he says, At the head of every street you built your lofty places and you made your beauty an abomination, offering yourselves, spreading your legs, literally offering yourselves to any passerby, multiplying your whorings. This is a picture of, of, of addiction. This is, I have to have, and I have to have, and I really have to have, and I got to have more, and I got to have more, and I gotta, it's got to be different and better, and I got to be somebody more because of it. It's worse and worse. It's a far more profound understanding of sin, right? It's not just breaking God's rules. It's breaking God's heart by saying, I love something more. Which actually changes the way we look at things. Like, right, I think I've used this illustration in the past, but like, like, thou shalt not lie is a rule, right? That's one of the rules. Thou shalt not lie. But, but why you lie is always the question. There's something there that you have to have that is causing you to lie. Now, I know you all don't lie, but this week, um, I got a phone call about probably about 8.30 uh, on a Monday night. And Becky and I are watching The Voice, so don't call me at 8.30 on a Monday night. It was, one, it was a pastor friend of mine. He called me. I just looked at it. I was like, nope. And um, next morning, he left me a text, and he was like, hey, um, sorry I missed you. I was actually trying to get some questions for you, but I got it figured out and resolved without you, so no worries. And I started replying in a text. And in that text, I just started to lie. Because it is really, you know what I have to have? Like, I have to, I have to be respected. I have to, like, I have to feel and believe that I'm needed because if I'm not needed, then I can't have impact. Like, that, that thing calls my name. It, it wants to be my lover. It has been my lover for a long time. And so, so I'm replying a lie. Like, hey, listen, uh, important things happening. And suddenly the spirit, by the grace of God, this time, the spirit was like, you, you don't need that. And I was like, I, I, don't, I don't need that. Tick, 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 tick. You know, like, glad it worked out. See ya. You know, like that, that's all I got. But, but what's happening there? Like, I'm lying because there's something else at stake, but there's something I have to have. I have to have it. It'll tell me that I matter. Unless I can justify it with good reason for why I couldn't come through and be to you what you need to be, then I, then I better hide. Because I have to be influential. I have to be trustworthy. I have to have impact. So sin at the deepest level is not breaking the rules. It's spiritual adultery. That's what the passage is telling us. This is what it looks like. There's a spiritual and an emotional need that, that we're pursuing that's parallel to the sexual need that we experience physical in our physical life. So if I have you, whatever you are, then I'm okay. And the Lord's saying, listen, anything that's more important than me that you're drawn to, that you're going to give your ultimate allegiance to, your love, you're, you're in bed with it. Now, why, why, why is um, this distinction, why does it matter? Well, if we're breaking God's heart and not his rules, that changes the way in which we repent to him. Don't you see, do you see it? See how that changes the way we repent to him? There was a, a commentator and, and uh, in a commentary, uh, he was a former guy who used to be a pastor, and uh, he'd had someone... 
a man come to him whose, life, whose wife had just left him. And he just showed up, said he wanted a meeting with him. He just showed up and sat down in his office and he brought his wedding album with him. And he just sat there turning the pages of his wedding album and just wept and wept, just covering the pictures with his tears. And the commentator said, I, I can never read Ezekiel 16 without seeing that man and seeing God weeping over us in that exact same way. You see, see how it changes it? It's not like you did a bad thing. That's not what sin is anymore. Suddenly it's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm betraying one who loves me, who's, who's my spousal love promise. So men, what would it be like for you to see your wife in the dress that you bought her with the necklace that you put around her neck doing that with someone else? What would that feel like? Ladies, we would like to see your, your, your husband in, in the car that you surprised him with on his birthday, in the suit that you helped him pick out because he's bad at clothes, picking up some other woman and, and taking her around town and, and bringing her back to your bed. Like, what does that feel like? Because that is what God feels like in a way. God has made himself vulnerable. He's done all these things out of love, not out of duty. You do know that, right? God's given you all his gifts, not out of duty, but out of delight, because he wants to. He's made himself vulnerable to us. He's opened his heart to us, and in sin, he weeps. It changes how we repent. So how are you breaking God's heart? It's a different question. How are you breaking God's heart right now? Can you look at your life? Well, not only does our idolatry and our sin break God's heart, but ironically, and we get destroyed in the process. It crushes us. Our so-called lovers, these promised ones, these ones that we're giving our affections to, they, they cut us to pieces. What's astounding in Ezekiel 16, by the way, is, is that the accusation that the Lord gives, he's like, hey, listen, by the way, normally, if you're going to prostitute yourself, someone pays you, but you're the kind that actually asks, you, you give away, you, you pay. You're, you're, not, you're, you're buying the affection. You're so broken and backwards. And so the so-called lovers come and cut to pieces. Verse 39 says, and I will give you into their hands. This is not retribution, by the way. This is, this is the fitting reality of what's unfolded. And they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. And they shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you into pieces with their swords. What's happening here? When we worship other gods, when we, when we go to bed with other gods and we fail them, they will not forgive you. 
And, and sadly, oftentimes, <laughs> we don't even realize that that is an idol, that this is, this is another lover until we fail them and reality comes crashing in. So the God of physical beauty that's in your bed with you will show up unexpectedly and will start screaming at you that you're now too ugly and too fat, too wrinkly, too slow. And by the way, no one wants you anymore. Yeah, the idol of beauty will cut you to pieces. Your successful career, your financial achievement, achievement lover will, je will jeer at you, looking at you saying, shouldn't you be further along by now? Look at your peers. Look at their titles. Your perfect family or ideal kids God will start accusing you of just being a terrible mom being a disappointment as a dad or as a husband or a worthless wife. And at the most basic level, all anxiety attacks, all dejection, all misery, all fits of rage, all manipulation, all, all deceptive uh, tactics are the result of an unforgiving lover who is cutting you to pieces. We've gotten into bed with good but wrong things, and they are killing us. And so the question, the natural question is, who or, or what are you in bed with? What is your lover, lovers, that will not forgive you, that cheer you on until you fail them and then cut you to pieces? This is a vivid picture that God paints. We see him as, as an, an enamored husband where we're enthralled with what God desires for us and then we see him as an anguished husband where we're confronted with what's wrong with us. But then God closes this book or this chapter with just this incredible imagery of a faithful husband where we see how what's wrong with us is made right. And we see it right here in this verse 59 and 60, very important. Verse 59 begins, says, For thus says the Lord, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Did, did anyone else hear the paradox? This feel like two juxtaposed thoughts, right? Listen, I'm not going to hold you accountable for what you've done. What you've done? Yep. I'm going to hold you accountable for that. Also, I'm actually going to uphold the covenant. I'm actually going to make a new covenant with you and, and it'll be an everlasting forever kind of covenant. And this, this, this narrative strain is all over the Old Testament. If, you, if you've been reading along, you've probably heard it. You go from one chapter where it's like, okay, so it's over. And then you'll find yourself in another chapter where the Lord's going like, and I will revive my love for you and I will pursue you and I will make it well and I make a promise to you. It's like, what in the world? One piece seems to be this unconditional perspective and the other seems to be this conditional response. On the one hand, I'll give you what you deserve and what is that? What do you deserve? 
You've been, you've been out with other lovers. What do you deserve? You've broken the covenant. You deserve to be rejected, right? If you've been abandoned my covenant, well, then I'm going to abandon you. If you're going to be faithful, well, then I'll be faithful to you. If you're going to turn from me, then I will turn from you. That, that's conditional. You hear the conditional reality in there. And God's holy. He's all-powerful, and he is just. And, and at the same time, in the same sentence, God turns around and says, I'll never leave you. I'll never abandon you. How are these juxtaposed? How are these right next to each other? How does that work? They're not the same thing. The answer shows up down in verse 63. Starting in verse 62, God repeats himself. He says, I will establish my covenant with you, and, and that's how you'll know that I am the Lord that you may remember and, and be confounded, like blown away, and, and never open your mouth again because of your shame. Listen, when I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord. I will establish my covenant with you when I atone for you and all, for all that you have done. What does it mean to, to atone? Uh, just pull it apart. At one, right? It makes, it's to make one, to, to pull together. Atonement is the making of one. God's wanting to be united with. He's wanting to unify us with himself to bring us into the bride chamber. How in the world does God make us one? He, he says, I, I'm going to atone, but how, do, how does he do that? How does he restore that, that spousal love? How does he fulfill the covenant for both? And one of the maybe best pictures of it is to look at, at Jesus at a wedding. Jesus, John chapter 2, this is the first miracle recorded by Jesus. He finds himself at this wedding, having been invited, he and his family. And at this wedding, the bride and the groom run out of wine, which is just a tragedy. But, but in those days, it was a crime, basically. The party starts to stop. Shame on the family. And his mom comes to him and says, do something about it. And Jesus responds with the normal thing you would expect, right? Listen, I'm not really into miracles quite yet. I got some. No, no, what does he say? He says, my hour has not come yet. This is not my hour. Now, everywhere else in the book of John, my hour means the cross. It always means his suffering, every single time. So why here does Jesus say, my hour has not come yet? Jesus knows something that other people there don't know. He's thinking about his own wedding to his own bride. That in order to provide wine for his wedding, he's going to have to atone. Because there's this uncrossable, unbridgeable gap between God the Father, the, the husband to his people, and the people who have rejected him and loved other gods. We've chosen other lovers but broken his heart. One commentator says, 
That's Jesus declaring, if I am going to raise the cup of festal joy at my wedding, I am going to have to drink the cup of divine wrath for sin, the eternal justice of God. And the wine that Jesus would have to provide if he was going to have to atone, if he was going to have to become husband to his people that he loves, was going to have to be the cup of his blood. So do you see him choosing that for you? Because that's the atonement he's talking about. Do you see God making himself vulnerable in love to his people? That other, other lovers break in and cut you to pieces, but he's the lover who comes and is cut to pieces for you. Other lovers strip us naked and bare. They accuse. On the cross, Jesus is the husband who was stripped naked and bare for us. He took it all. And he took it all thinking about it at the feast, of, at, the, at the, uh, the wedding in Cana, and he took it all on, that, on the cross as the anguished husband. Heartbroken. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He got on his knees, he brought a ring, and they swatted it out of his hand and said, I don't really want any part of that. I want, I want a different set of lovers. And, I'm going to go that way and rejected the offering. They hung him on a cross. It's probably why the, the language in Ephesians chapter 5 is so powerful. I mean, you know, obviously it's used at weddings about, you know, husbands loving their wives, but the actual bulk of that's actually about Jesus and his church. It's about Jesus and you and me. So listen to what it says. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Do you remember the washing? Like, I got you out of your blood, and I washed you and anointed you with oil. The washing of his word so that he might present us, the church, to himself in splendor, in beauty, Like he, he wanted you to be beautiful, and he wanted you to know that you were beautiful. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, when we see him doing that for us, it gives us a desire to delight and please him. Not because it's the rules, but because he is so delighted and pleased in us because of Jesus. When I asked you earlier if you believe that in this moment that God delights in you, the answer might have been, I don't, I don't know, it's been a rough week. But, but do you see? Do you see the condition for delight? Do you see the condition for affection? Do you, do you see the condition for a guaranteed covenant love with you? It's another. 
It's not your record. It's, it's his record. It's, it's his husband love to you. And, and men, I know it gets a little weird sometimes when church is the bride of Christ, but like get over it. Like we're that needy, that unsure, that, like we can handle it, right? We can say, we say, okay, it's fine. Like the Lord is our husband. He is our spouse loving God. He comes more and more to us as we see him in beauty and we trust him. And obey him. And that's what we do here at the table, right? It, it reminds us of the one who at one us, who atoned for us, for himself. And that you've been made beautiful by him. All the language of being clothed in his righteousness. I heard one person say, doesn't matter what a woman ever looks like outside of then, but a woman in her wedding dress always looks spectacular. And loved ones, because of Jesus, dressed always in wedding garb we are. And that's what gives us permission then to come forward and receive these elements, asking God to like search us in the season of Lent to be able to say, Lord, who am I in bed with? You, you clearly love me, you're after me, you'll pursue me, you're, you'll welcome me home. But, but, but who and what, what is happening? What, what is too important? What matters more? There's always a way home, and he's made it possible because of his body and his blood. And that's why when we take these elements, they remind us of it. They get deep in our soul. Our invitation is to pray with scholar and poet John Donne. In his holy sonnets, he wrote, Take me to you, praying to God, and says, Take me to you. Imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. God is pursuing you as a husband pursues his bride, as a bridegroom pursues his bride. And his invitation is to respond. Will you respond this morning to him? Let's pray. Father, I praise you that you have by your mercies and in your wisdom shown us a way in which you relate to us, the desires of your heart towards us as the God of the universe, the one on whom when everyone encounters them fall to their knees. And yet you make these declarations that not only do you want us to delight in you, which is fitting and right, you're worthy of all praise, but, but that you also delight in us because of Jesus and it makes us want to praise and worship him. And so all praise and all glory belong to you. We thank you that you have adorned us with the righteousness of Jesus and that we stand delightable because of you. And so Lord, we wanna stand in that delight enjoying you, and Lord, staying with you and not running off, allowing your delight to be the delight of our hearts that no other lover would ever be able to even get close to enamor us with their petty and useless promises. So Lord, purify us, wash us as you say in Ephesians 5, that we may be clean all the way through. We pray this in Jesus, our Savior, our good and faithful husband.
Amen. Well, in your own time, take the body and the blood of Christ through the blood, through the uh, cup, and um, and through the bread, and receive the grace of Jesus for you.